This podcast was prepared by Ashley and Martell in a personal capacity. The opinions expressed in this show are the host's own and do not reflect the views of any of their personal affiliations. So. It's episode 25. Yeah, I can't wait till we get an official intro with like some music and like a beat and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so okay. hey y'all, it's episode 25. It is your girl, Ashley. And yeah, and it's your boy. Martel, also known as Pierre Defecto on this podcast. But uh, thank you for joining us on Black Political Millennials. Yes, and we are back with another episode in our interview series. I guess we can call it that for the upcoming primary elections in Allegheny County in Pennsylvania. And we are so excited to have our guest today. It's a he's a candidate for the Court of Common Pleas. And without further ado, we'd like to welcome Giuseppe Roselli to the show. Hi, Hi Marco. How are you guys doing? Good. <laughs> How are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, we're so happy to be here. You know, um, I think for me, I always go back to think about previous elections. And when you go to the ballot and you're looking at the judges and you see like, 30 names and you pick two people and you're like, who are these people and right. what do they do? And so this year, this local election year, um, we have a huge opening on our Court of Common Pleas bench. We have nine seats open, which is approximately a quarter of the bench. And <clears throat> if we are able to put a majority of um, good people on the bench, we can really see some changes here um, begin to form here in Allegheny County. Um, so this particular race is for me so, so big. Um, we are uh, on this day of recording, it's April 15th. We are 33 days away from election day. So we are literally in the home stretch. Um, so, just to, you know, get us kicked off, um, Giuseppe, you know, let the people know, who are you? Who is Giuseppe? <laughs> so uh, I'm a criminal defense attorney by trade. You know, that's, that's all I've ever done in, in my career. Um, you know, I have some experience in some of the other divisions, but it would be disingenuous of me to say I'm anything but a criminal defense attorney. I've de dedicated my entire career to that effort. Um, so uh, I was born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania, on the eastern side of the state. Uh, I was raised by a 17-year-old mother and um, an African-American stepfather in an extremely diverse community. Uh, I didn't know at that time that we were poor, but you know, we were the have-nots in our community. And uh, you know, with that gives you a certain perspective about about privilege, about life, about, you know, all aspects of the world that you're, you're walking into when you become an adult and you're raising your own children. Um, my family was a very proud family, despite our, you know, our modest, the, the, the modest way that we lived. Um, and we worked hard. My mom never missed a day at work. My dad never missed a day at work. Uh, and that work ethic is something that's been instilled in me forever. It's, it's part of my, my fabric. I'm trying to instill that into my two kids. I'm married with two children, spent 20 plus years on the north side in Brighton Heights. Um, I have a, my wife and I adopted our first child, Evie, and she's, she's African-American. And um, shortly after the adoption process, my wife um, got pregnant and she gave birth to our youngest, Sophie. Uh, we moved to Bell Acres, which is just north of Swickley um, a couple years ago for, um, for a number of reasons, um, but uh, I miss the city very much. I can tell you that. I miss, you know, I, the, the first week or so living in what I call the country. Um, <laughs> it was difficult. It, it was difficult to get to sleep. It was too quiet. Um, my, my entire life has been dedicated to, to the concepts of equality, the concepts of fairness. Um, you know, when you when you when you're raised in an interracial home, you're sensitive to those issues. You're sensitive to the way that 
people look at you the way you're the way that you're embraced in certain communities and, and not embraced in others. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to be able to navigate that world um, in, in a way that gave me really good perspective on the differences um, that, uh, that we have as people, but more importantly, what we share as people is we're far more alike than we are different. Um, so, that's where I come from. Um, who I am, I'm a trial lawyer. You know, I, I, I try cases. In fact, I, I may be one of the only, not only, but one of the few candidates who's tried a case during this campaign cycle. Um, and I can tell you it's hard <laughs> balancing running a campaign and maintaining the level of professionalism that you want to provide the people who, tr who trust you with your freedom. Um, so uh, I try cases. I, I've tried multiple homicide cases over the course of my career. Um, I've tried every case from disorderly conducts to homicides. Uh, and I'm dedicated to these concepts. They're, they're core. They're part of my core being fairness, equality, and just being thoughtful in how we do things in the criminal justice system. Wow. And can you talk to us about how you got into uh, the field of law? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there's, <laughs> when I was in college, um, when I was in college, I got into a fight and, um, that fight was based on, um, someone saying something in a moment where they thought it was a safe space to say it. And, um, that, that's not something that that I accept, you know, it doesn't mean it's a disqualifying factor. It doesn't mean we can no longer communicate, but what it does mean is we're going to have a conversation about it. And depending on how that conversation goes, that'll dictate how the relationship continues or doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, so when I got into that, into that moment, um, police were involved. I, you know, I'm not, I, I didn't get in a lot of trouble. You know, I was terrified of my parents. I lived in my car for a couple of weeks because I didn't want to go home and face music with my parents. They didn't know mm -hmm. that I was in trouble. And at some point it got back to them. And um, the conversation I had with my father was essentially, I understand why you did what you did. Did it make anything better? That was the first question. Mm -hmm. um, the next question was, um, do you think do you think there was a better way? Do you think you could have fixed this through, through dialogue, through conversation? And he said, you're gonna run across people who are racist every day. You're gonna run across people who see the world differently than you do every day. This is not acceptable. What are you going to do to fix these problems, to solve these problems, to change minds? And it was in that moment where the law made sense. You know, I, I was lucky enough to be in college. I wasn't a very good student out of high school. Um, I had to work my way into a position to go to college. And once I got there, I started to excel. And this made sense. This is something that could happen. You know, I was the first to go, first to graduate high school in my family, first to go to college and the only to go to law school. So when I went to law school, I went to law school with the intent of representing those accused and making sure that those that trusted me with their with their cases, with their freedom, um, that I stood up for equal process, that I stood up for, for them being treated fairly. Um, so that's how I, how I got to law school and why I went to law school. So, you know, as, as we continue to say court of common pleas and, you know, that's the office you're running for, I, I think we, we can maybe assume people know what that means, but a lot of people don't. Sure. So could you tell us a little bit about what does the Court of Common Pleas do? What what are the cases that those judges are over? Right. So, so there are four divisions. Uh, I'm focused primarily on criminal. Uh, I, there, there's family division, uh, which encompasses juvenile and domestic matters. There's orphans courts. So we're dealing with the states. We're dealing with adoptions. And there's civil court, you know, dealing with contract disputes and 
and issues issues uh, like that. Um, you know, what judges do is there to be the impartial arbiter of evidence. They are to um, review the evidence and make decisions based on admissibility, make decisions based on um, burden of proof, you know, follow the constitution, follow the law. Um, and it's important to understand that the law is the law, but we all bring our own personal experiences to that seat. And, and our thought process and how we come to conclusions and how we interpret the law is based on those life experiences. So I, I talk about um, the line of impartiality. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, when I say the things that I say in, in an election, in this election cycle specifically, you know, there are people who have suggested I'm not that, that I'm not impartial, that it sounds as if your mind is made up. And the first thing, that's nonsense, you know. But the next, what I go through when I hear those things, um, I hear two things specifically. The first is the speaker is telling me that they're very comfortable with the status quo because every judge to a person will tell you that they are fair. They'll tell you that they're impartial. They'll tell you that they follow the law. And they, they, they reach that line of impartiality that I speak of. All I'm suggesting is that line of impartiality, that's been drawn in the wrong place over the course of our history. So when these judges who are exceptionally fair people, good people who believe they're doing the right thing, and they reach that line of impartiality that is the status quo today, in reality, they're falling woefully short to what fairness is, to what equality actually is. We just have very different, different definitions on what equality is. Um, so a judge brings those life experiences to the interpretation of the law and how to resolve dispute in a thoughtful way. And that's what I hope to do if given that opportunity. You know, I think that that point you just made about where the current status quo is at when we talk about being impartial and and it takes it takes uh you know people to come in with that understanding to move the needle because if if it was impartial we wouldn't be discussing right. um, a lot of the disparities that we're seeing today when it comes to how uh, decisions are made sure. in the courtroom. So one of the things that I'm very proud of, of my campaign team, proud of, of my campaign team for, is we're not focused on opinion. You know, I, I have my opinion, I have my positions, but those opinions and positions are, are rooted in two very sound foundations and that's one one is a 20 plus year uh, 20 plus years of experience working within it the second is we do our research you know, we're one of the very few campaigns that is actually putting data out into into social media uh, not not necessarily not necessarily saying <clears throat> um, you know police are bad no I'm not suggesting that what I'm suggesting is what we're doing what we've been what we've been doing up to this point has created this disparate impact on communities uh, and we have the data. So right. the first part of this is accepting that it's a problem. And I believe that conversation, that conversation is still ongoing, right? We're still trying to convince people that these issues are real. Mm -hmm. And that's why I back it up with data. You know, I, I don't want anyone to say that I am motivated by politics or I'm motivated by, um, by, by the media. Now, I'm motivated by what I've seen in my life experience and, and what I've done over the course of the, the past 20 years. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing those posts on social media because I myself personally, I've learned um, from those posts and I, I share them in my story sometimes because like you said, it's it's data driven, you know, there's, there's no opinion here. Like this is fact, you know, these are the numbers, these are the experiences. And 
also as a black man, there were some things that I know that affect black men in the, in the court system that I had no knowledge about, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm in certain spaces and still didn't know. So, you know, people that don't really follow government or follow courts, they're not going to really know. They know that the, the deck, the stack, the, the decks are stacked, but never how much, you know, Correct. and, and, and right. never knowing that this is historical, you know, this is systematic um, and there's numbers to prove it. So I, I sincerely appreciate I was trying to find one to, to share I just um, <clears throat> really quickly. You got one? I pulled up. Yeah, I just followed you for, from the Black Political Millennials page and um, pulled up. This was just the last post from three hours ago. Um, according to the Abolition Law Center, during the COVID-19 pandemic, an average of more than two people per day in Allegheny County were required to pay $1,079 in order to avoid incarceration for a misdemeanor charge. Right. Right. So when we talk about issues of cash bail, which has been one of the hot topics during this, during this election cycle, first let me say, I understand why it's a hot topic, but for me, that's low hanging fruit. For me, that's, this is an easy conversation. Of course, we, we can't attach one's financial ability to their freedom. I mean, that's, that's, that can't be part of a just system. And because it's part of, of the dialogue now, you know, I'll engage with it. Uh, we have proven over the last however many months we've been dealing with COVID that we do not need to incarcerate people, that they will show up to court, that the system will not break down, that, that crime will not run rampant in the streets. Um, so at what point do we acknowledge that up to the, that point, it was a choice. And if it was a choice, well, what's motivating that choice? See, I believe everything is motivated by economics. Yep. We've created an economic infrastructure based on incarcerating our citizens and supervising our citizens. So when we talk about reform, the scary thing for, for politicians who, who engage in this conversation is reform means jobs on some level. If we turn things around, we don't need as many police officers on the street. We don't need as many jail cells. We don't need as many probation officers. And so committing to treating people better also means committing to making adjustments as to who financially benefits from treating people better. And that's a tricky conversation because people will get defensive immediately. Why do they follow the money? Because normally you get to the root when you follow where the money's coming from. I mean, it's true indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's just super unfortunate. But the as I always say, it's about how we create the narrative because narrative is so important. And mm -hmm. um, you know, even even when we talk about being progressive, you know, because that's also a new like not new, but it's like a buzzword. You know, everyone wants to use progressive, mm -hmm. but it's like okay, but where's the where's the backing of the progressiveness? And so um, it's honestly just refreshing, you know, and I don't, I don't know if, if it's because, you know, for, for myself, I'm older and just even more engaged, but I've been voting since I was 18 and it hasn't been maybe a, 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 up until the last four years that I feel like I've come across candidates that I'm like, oh my goodness, you speak mm -hmm. my language. Sure. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. You're talking to me. You're not talking right. at me. You're not talking past me. And people don't, aren't used to that. People don't expect mm -hmm. that. They put, you know, folks who are elected or in some, some, some title and they put them on this pedestal. And it's like, actually, these are the people that should be working for us and serving us and creating the environments that allow all of us to thrive. Right. You know, mm -hmm. one, one of the things that, that I've been talking about often is many times our elected officials are disconnected from the people that they serve. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so to be in a position to become electable, you know, you have to have a family name, you have to have, a, you know, a war chest of money. There, you have mm -hmm. to check off certain boxes that, that allow you to even just become viable, let alone win, right? Right. Well, this election cycle is different. And, and when we mapped out, when my team mapped out a way for us to get there, um, 
there were boxes that were checked in this election cycle that wouldn't have been checked two years ago or four years mm -hmm. ago, right? So we're finally at a point where this conversation, look, when I got into this race, I thought I was going to have to convince people that the issues that I'm speaking of are actually problems. And then I went to my first democratic committee meeting and to a person, every one of them, we need to change the criminal justice system. We need equality, we need fairness. And I'm scratching my head because I've worked with some of these people. I know what my definition is and I know we're not the same. Right. <clears throat> so we need people, we need to change the system about, of how we elect our leaders, right? $8,000 for an endorsement is laughable. We talk about a position of impartiality. What is... What... Mm -hmm. Oh no, gotta love the Zoom. I'm sure he'll be back. We had a little pause, yeah. but $8,000 for an endorsement it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And then, you know what I'm saying? Like, while we wait on Giuseppe to come back, like, we talk about disparities, right? We talk about economics and classism and class, like, and like Giuseppe said, war chest. You know what I mean? So $8,000 for some campaigns, that's nothing. That's a drop in the bucket. For some campaigns, 8000 might be all they have to get started. Yeah. You know, where that might be all they have. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that it's, I, I'm glad that that point was brought up about how much it's costing for endorsements because that's that's a separation, you know what I mean? Like that's really a separation of class and economics, you know? It's, it's meant to um, perpetuate systemic racism and systemic classism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's meant to make sure that voices like mine are not part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Right. It's intentional. No doubt about it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and look, it, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily, I understand, it's like all issues of systemic racism. If you have a conversation with one person and they explain why they do what they do, you can find justification maybe. And well, okay, that, that's not racism, right? But when you look at the whole picture and you take it all in and you understand the data well, that, that explanation no longer holds water for me. That's just the justification in your mind. That's just an excuse. Um, so until we change how we elect our, our leaders, this process is gonna continue to, to be part of our daily lives. And the goal is to jumpstart it in this election. If, if we get these seats and put people in positions who actually care about these issues and are willing to stand up and have these difficult conversations, we can speed this process up because this is a lifetime fight. This is a lifetime effort. Mm -hmm. I get on the bench next year. I leave in 10, I leave in 20. We're still going to be talking about some of these issues as we go forward. Yeah. yeah. And um, that leads us to the next question that I have for you. Um, we talk about lifetime and decades you know, being on the bench. Um, I'm just curious, what is, um, it doesn't have to be one thing, it'd be a couple of things, but um, what were some things that you will want to create or change um, while you're on the bench? <clears throat> so the, the one thing that um, I believe is most important and I think can have the greatest effect, uh, the greatest effect systemically is what I call opportunity court. And mm -hmm. In Allegheny County, we have four, four or five diversion courts, depending on how you, you look at, at um, one of the diversion courts. But the big ones are mental health court, DUI court, um, veterans court, and drawing a blank on the last one, uh, drug court. Yeah, drug court. So those, those, quote unquote, diversion programs. Um, they essentially have recognized the underlying contributing cause to the criminal behavior. And because we've recognized the underlying contributing cause, we're going to provide the resources that this individual needs. We're gonna build up the individual, right? We don't want that individual to have to go serve a jail sentence. 
because we understand there's something that is driving the behavior. And that's wonderful. You know, that's a great baseline to, to start this conversation. But we fall short in three very specific reasons. And this is the change that I hope to lead. The first is we ignore poverty and lack of opportunity as the greatest contributing cause to criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're a young, poor individual, 18 years old, 19 years old, who um, may have sold some weed, um, you're facing a felony conviction. You have a cop that won't budge. You have a DA who won't budge. Um, you, you go through the general docket. You may get your period of probation. They'll start setting you up for failure, but they're not going to build you up for success. So we want to, to expand the program. I want to expand the program to bring in people 18 to 25 who we can identify that come from poverty, that come from uh, a circumstance that, that limits opportunity. The second thing is, in order to become eligible for a diversion program in Allegheny County, your next step must be jail, right? So this is diversion from incarceration. Your guidelines call for jail time. We don't think you should have to go to jail. We're going to divert you out of the criminal justice system and provide you with the resources. Why are we waiting? If we can identify those issues at the first offense, why aren't we using those resources there so we don't have to deal with it on the fifth, sixth offense? The last piece is... If you commit to working one of these programs, and what's great about these programs is there is um, direct interaction between the court and the, the individual who's charged. You, you come into court once a month, once every two months. You're held accountable in the moment from the person sitting on the bench. There's a relationship that is built there. And with my experience dealing with people who... who um, have gone through the system on my watch. I've worked with people to get them where they needed to be. And it doesn't always work. I've had, I have some real tragedies in my life when it comes to clients. There was a period of 14 months where I was at 14 funerals because of overdoses. So none of this is perfect. But if you work a program for two years and you pay back your debt to society and that, that payback isn't necessarily jail, isn't necessarily supervision, that payback is change of behavior. Well, to me, that's accountability. Why do you have to walk out of this system with a conviction? Which, which, is, which lays, when you have that conviction, you are now facing those same social harms that you were trying to avoid by diverting someone from a jail sentence. The conviction oftentimes in and of itself is, is the harm. So the judicial system, you, you've given, you've been, you've paid back your society, you paid back your debt to the judicial system. Now you got to go pay the pay society's debt. That's not, that's not acceptable to me. There's, we need to be more thoughtful on how we handle, especially our young people who come through the system. Because here, here's, here's what people just choose to ignore to, to accept, or they, they choose to you know, willfully accept it. We're paying for that as taxpayers, right? So if, if an 18, or, or 18 to 25-year-old is unable to maximize their earning potential, if they're unable to live in certain areas, which means that their education, their children's education is limited, if it means that they, they, they are struggling to put food on the table because employment is so difficult, we're creating an environment where recidivism is more likely. Mm-hmm. And that's an intentional act. We have to do better. So this is just such a good conversation. Like there's some questions that I had that I don't even want to ask them because we are just really digging into just the parts and the pieces of this system that we all have to operate in that I think is making it super relatable. So as we talk about this and, and, and um, when we talk about like the numbers of uh, black and brown people that are incarcerated in the county jail compared to uh, the numbers of us living in this county and 
how we use incarceration. Can you talk about your views on the purpose of incarceration and when you feel it is and isn't appropriate? I feel like you kind of started tapping yeah. into that. So as we talk about people going to jail, because some people just feel like, oh, well, you do the crime, you do the time. Yeah. And it's like, well, is that really how this should be? So yeah, the next part of that conversation is, well, you know, you understand that you're paying, you're paying for that over the course of this individual's lifetime. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when that part of the conversation, it, you know, we talk about how, um, you know, when we talk about political ideology and, and two different sides uh, of the coin, you know, oftentimes you have very conservative people who are very pro law and order, right? And they're very, um, they take the position of small government, right? Government is inefficient, right? Well, we ignore that when it comes to police. Police, I mean, that's a government function. We ignore that when it comes to the jail, when it comes to the court system. Mm-hmm. So, so we, have an, we have a system that is inefficient and ineffective, but when it comes to law and order, when it comes to incarcerating more than 50% of the African-American community at the Allegheny County Jail on a 13% total population in the county. Thank you for the number. We are, we are cool accepting that. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> what is the purpose of, of incarceration? For me, it's philosophical. It, it's this false sense of security. That's what it is to me. It's this idea that if we are, if we incarcerate, um, if we use the, the justice system as a tool to incarcerate um, behavior without providing the resources to build people up, people somehow feel safe despite the numbers suggesting otherwise, despite the fact that crime doesn't go down. So for me, it's, it's all a facade. And um, you know what, I'm, it's funny that we're talking about incarceration. I'm actually reading um, Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis right now. Um, and they're in this book right now, we're talking about the prison industrial complex. And um, she is currently, I'm, I'm reading a, a paragraph right now where there's a comparison between um, the, the court system in Australia and, and our, the prisons in Australia and the prisons in the United States. And black and brown people make up the majority of prisons in the United States. But in Australia, uh, Aboriginal people make up the majority of people incarcerated in Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sister Angela Davis is, is basically drawing a comparison where it's like, instead of helping the demographics of people that need the most assistance, they're incarcerating them. You know, so that we bring all the way back and, you know, she's talking about the ability to abolish prisons. But I think about in order to to do that, we have to change the way that the court system runs. You have to change the way that convictions go. And that's why diversion court and opportunity court are so important. And I know there's going to be people that are listening to this podcast or or watch this video and they're going to be like, wow, I didn't know courts could do these things. Mm -hmm. And we can vote for somebody that wants to be a judge that can do these things. And it's, I know for some people, it's going to be mind blowing because we never think of judges in a progressive light. You know, I, I honestly feel like this this election now was the first time where I'm like, there are some judges that are people or people that are trying to run for judge that are really trying to make progressive changes in the court. And that's not the case. Anytime, you know, whether you're a black or brown person, whether you're a person from a disadvantaged community or marginalized community, when it's time to go to court, you already feel like, you know, you already lost, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Your back's already against the wall. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really appreciating this um, conversation so much. And like you said, Ash, earlier, it's a refreshing and it's a breath of fresh air to have somebody that really sees the opportunity to change the courts. Um, and that's why I'm glad that we have, we have you on here right now on, on Black Political Millennials because um, this conversation is really important. And um, this primary is really important. And I know there are some people that are still suffering with that burnout from November, mm-hmm. um, but we got to shake that off. You know, we, we really have to understand it. We have to come back out in large numbers to make changes locally, you know, and, and make changes where they matter the most, um, especially in Allegheny County and in the greater Pittsburgh area. Um, but one thing, um, 
with a lot of candidates, um, you know, they talk about ballot positioning, but I'm curious, can you tell us what your ballot position number is or what your ballot number is just so people listening sure. know where to look for you at? Yeah, I'm, I'm at number 30. Okay. okay. So 30 out of 39. All right. 30 out of 39. And there's only nine seats, folks. So Giuseppe Roselli. I think you can't forget that name. That's a name that when you see oh. it, you know, you heard it on yeah. BPM. Like, and we are going to uh, make sure we, you know, we're going to amplify your name over these next few weeks because it's just really, it's really, really important. And after what we saw Allegheny County do this past November, we know what the possibilities are. You know, we know what we are capable of as voters. And um, we really, um, everybody is affected by the court of common pleas, no matter whether you're going to court, you know someone going to court, your family, your friends, you know, you have a loved one that has to deal with, this system and Giuseppe said a, a bunch of times and we paying for it so mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's just it's a really important you know it's a really important space for us to um push the needle this is this is the time where we can really push the needle it will and, ne- actually I'm sorry to interrupt there will never be another time like this mm. you, say will never- you say that again you will never see another opportunity like this one. This mm-hmm. is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Mm. That is, uh, that is. Did you hear that? Um, you hear that, everybody? Yeah, that is very uh, compelling. Once in a lifetime. I, mm-hmm. You know, and when we, when, when this race came up um, and conversations started about how many seats were open at, I think because I'm always so used to seeing 50 judges run that I never really realized how many openings there were and how impactful it will be. Um, And so I feel like the people are engaged, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people out and it's more than I've ever seen. And just, you know, my, you know, short so, time but so the, the one thing that that i've been hearing recently is you know this idea that candidates are, are making they're they're pushing platforms or agendas that they can't they can't make happen and mm. I, I can appreciate why one would say that but that's within the sphere of what we've done Right. So because we haven't been able to do it previously, doesn't mean we can't do it tomorrow. It just takes thought. It just takes a thoughtful approach. If, if we have a if there's a D.A. who stands in the way of opportunity court, D.A.'s come and D.A.'s go. Mm-hmm. You know, the next D.A. in, I'll be knocking on their door saying we need to consider opportunity court. But this conversation, when we talk about issues like opportunity court, I don't necessarily believe that that voice is at the table currently. And if you give me an opportunity to lead that conversation, there are people currently on the bench who I know would follow. There are people who get elected in this, this election who I know will follow. So we can do this. And because it's hard or we haven't done it before, those don't fly for me. That, that, that's, that's not, a, that's not a, a justification for me that that works. Of course we can. We just haven't figured it out yet. Yes, sir. We can't be afraid to figure it out either. Mm-mm. Can't be afraid to figure it out. Mm-mm. I think that's important too. That I think um, when I, you know, as I listen to you and, you know, I spend time on, on your website um, and, and I see that, and even earlier in our interview, you, you mentioned trust, you know, and, and you talk about the importance of having trust and, I, th- I think it's important that you say that because, you know, where we're from, there are a lot of people that lose trust in the person that represents them right? and they lose and they've lost trust in the system in which this person can represent them. So for you to, to talk about that is really important for you to have the presence of mind to know that trust is important. That really matters. Um, but then also fearlessness, you know, there, there also has to be a bravery 
you know, or courage that comes with being able to take these stances, you know, and, and I really admire that about you. That's a quality that I, I said that I can, I've seen, you know, in the times that I've heard you speak and, and what I've read you, what I've read of yours, that there's a bravery. Um, but we want to get to another section. Um, this more so just about you, Mr. Roselli. Um, we have a, uh, what we do here, um, you know, we've had other electives and also I'd like to mention that um, you are the first Court of Common Pleas candidate that we've had on BPM. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a major shout out right there. We're going to get you an award for that later nice. in the year. So a couple, couple questions before we wrap up, um, favorite historical figure. Ooh, favorite historical figure. I want to give you good answers. So give me a second to think on this. That's cool. <laughs> All right, there's some some very trailblazing folks. For certain. Um, they don't gotta just be one. If you got two or three to come to mind, that's no, it's it's you know, I've I've been asked the question about judicial role models, I've been asked the question of, of you know, these types of questions. And the reality for me is I'm so in my own sort of bubble with with my people, my parents. You know, they, they've been such a, a, man, this could have been so different for someone like me. If I didn't have people that were on me, um, you know, this could have been so different for me. Uh, but I, I'll try to give you someone that I, I believe fits who I am as a person. Um, I would say, uh, man, I'm going to go with Thurgood Marshall. Ooh, That's the one I would like go that. with. You're talking about like someone who, who has courage, who, 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 you know, who embodies courage and use the law as a tool to, you know, very, sim very similar to the conversation that my dad and I had. He understood that the law is a tool to demand fairness, to demand equality. And not only his work on the bench, but his work before he got to the Supreme Court. Right. Um, right. You know, that's someone who I'd love to sit down and just talk to at some point and see that's what right. he would think of, of my ideas. Mm. That's dope. That's a great one. I also like the Mr. Thurgood Marshall, uh, Howard Law graduate. Yeah. Um, so I had to shout out HU real quick. Um, next it, question. It, what is the, go ahead. Uh, what's the last book that you read or are currently reading? So I haven't really read a book in, six months you know since the campaign mm -hmm. really started i figured that yeah but my, my team always provides <clears throat> different excerpts from different books and di different authors uh, i can tell you the one excerpt that has stuck with me the most um the author is isabel uh, wilkerson and the book mm -hmm. is called cast mm -hmm. and th mm -hmm. in the book it talks about you know we when we talk about the effects of slavery, we talk about the effects of Jim Crow and the systemic racism as a country. And we hear people say, well, you know, I didn't own slaves. Uh, I didn't discriminate. Uh, and they, they deflect responsibility of those institutions of racism because they personally or their family personally wasn't involved in those, in those types of behaviors. Um, she gives the, the analogy of uh, it's like buying a house, right? And when you walk into the house, you recognize that um, you know, you're there, your family's there. You, you see that there's leaks in the roof. The floorboards are coming out. There's exposed nails. There's electrical wiring that's exposed with a fire hazard. I mean, the house is, is, is in dis, disrepairs and disarray. And what we do as a country is we put buckets under the leaky roof rather than go fix the roof. And we say, well, I didn't cause the leak in the roof. Why should I have to fix it? And the conclusion is at some point, you have to accept ownership of your home. And if you allow these things to continue by just putting band-aids on them, that's the responsibility. That's the burden that you must own. 
Mm. You've had the ability mm. to fix, you chose not to. So at this point, it's a choice. And if there was ever a time for us to fix that roof, fix that wiring, make sure that the house that we're living in is safe for everyone, it's right now. Right now. But if you choose not to, that's a choice. And I can hold you accountable for that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Talk to us, please. Talk to the people. Yes, <laughs> that's yes, uh, that's Miss Wilkinson. That's not me. But that, that, that's, <laughs> what I, that's what I took from. Yes. No, but mm. I mean, it's just, uh, Y'all, do y'all hear this? This is this is our candidate. This is our candidate for the Court of Common Pleas, okay? No this question. Is, no this question. is definitely it. And I am just, I am encouraged. I am excited about the possibilities. Um, and it is these conversations that when you're in this work and you do this work day in and day out, this is how you keep going forward because you remember that there are people out here who know what needs to happen, who are ready to speak up, speak out, you know, and get us to the future that we know we can have, that our children can have, that our children's children can have, because this is lifelong work, you know? It's Mm -hmm. not something that will will happen in an election, you know? But, um... I think if we're talking about this in 2021, how are we going to be talking in 2025, you know? And mm-hmm. it just it just encourages me to, to, to say the least. You know, I could say a lot more, but what I can say is speaking with you today and just hearing, you know, your experiences and, and your perspective and where you're coming from, it is, oh, we can have we can have a beautiful we can have a beautiful future. And we absolutely can. Mm-hmm. We just we we must demand it. Yeah, and I want to I want to mm-hmm. lift up still in the spirit of Angela Davis since Martel mentioned um, that book, which is a great book. I read that book like about four years ago. I feel like I need to read it again because it's probably going to really tap into me um, this time mm-hmm. around. But she says, "I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept." And that yeah. is exactly um, what we're here for. That's what you you that's what you talked about today. You 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 are going to the things that you can't accept. You are going to do that work to make the changes that you know we can create. And and we're going to be there to support you because it's not a one person you know job. Uh, it's a community. It's you know? Heavy li- heavy lifting, and I need a lot of help. Mm-hmm. No the more hands, the lighter no the load. And that's that's what you know that's what we're going to do so before we wrap up we want to make sure that everyone knows how to find you how to support <clears throat> you so please share all of the information sure so uh my website is www.roselli that's r-o-s-s-e-l-l-i the number four judge.com uh, we have a Facebook page that we put out mo- most of our social media um, information on. And Fran Weimer, my campaign manager, is here. I-, I need to give him a tip of the hat because without him, um, you know, I- I'd be I'd be spinning my wheels most days. Um, you can also find us on Instagram, um, and you can call- you can text me if you have a question and want to talk. I will talk to you because it's important. It's important. These votes are important. And if you're not sure on me, if you're not sure about um, anything regarding my campaign, just spend a couple minutes with me. I'll be happy to give you that time. You can reach me at 412-877-7370. If you text me, you'll always get a response. Y'all, a candidate just gave y'all their phone number. If that isn't a committed public servant, I don't know what else to tell (laughs) y'all. I really don't. That's dope. That is. That made me feel like Mike Jones. You know what I mean? When Mike Jones used to give his number out and you could call like Mike. <laughs> Mike Jones. So we're going to say, who? Giuseppe Roselli. Hey, right. I got to say this though. I got to say this before we hop off because I said this on um, our March Madness episode and I said this on Jax about uh, Giuseppe Roselli putting me in a man of action, Bronson. 
And I just had to just say that again. <laughs> Giuseppe told me I wasn't the first person. So I feel better person. knowing I wasn't. <laughs> not, not the first person. Not the first person. <laughs> so last question real quick. So we're getting on music. So what are you listening to? You know, if you're just sitting back right. and you got a day off, what you playing? It all depends on the mood. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a time for Sade. There's, mm. a, time for, there's a time for DMX. Oh, um, I've yes. been on DMX, of course. Right, That's so, yeah. so um, you know, I, I grew up um, Tribe Called Quest. Um, nice. Oh, man. Tribe Called Quest, Black Sheep. Um, mm. You know, that's the era of, you know, the, the Yo! MTV Raps, New York. You know, I wasn't much no into, the, into the West Coast. Uh, right now, I listen to a lot of Most Def. Um, mm. You know, that that's sort of where where I'm at when it comes to music. Yeah, I love most Def. I, I heard when you uh when you got on, I know I heard you was playing a uh, most Def jam. I peeped that. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's, what I, was that myself, that's what, so. what I was listening to coming into it. But I, I will tell you that the soundtrack that I've been listening to most during this campaign has been the soundtrack of, of Hamilton, uh, because mm. you know the first part of that. I love Hamilton. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it's. You know, I'm not letting this opportunity pass. I promise you. Mm -hmm. uh, we will we will scrap our entire, the entire election cycle. As long as we're in this, we will continue to push because it's that important. Yes, sir. Giuseppe Roselli, number 30 on the ballot. Yes. Thank you for joining us, good sir. Thank I you for joining us. Um, make you, sure you, yes, make sure you all register to vote by May 3rd. Mail-in absentee ballot applications are due by May 11th, but do that now if you want to do a mail-in because we know how mail's going, y'all. May 11th to apply for the mail-in and absentee ballot. And if you are voting in person, which I am actually going to do this time, get to your poll on May 18th. We must get out the vote. We cannot have a low voter turnout. It is just, it just is not acceptable, y'all. And we're going to get on y'all nerves. Get out and vote. Can I say one last thing? Yes. Yes, sir. If anybody would like to contribute their time to help us get the word out, we are an exceptionally small campaign. So we need volunteers who believe as I believe, who, who believe that this is our opportunity to, to start the process of healing our, healing our justice system. We need people who are willing to knock on doors, do lit drops, work the polls. We need all of those people as we move forward in the last 30 days. So please reach out if you do want to contribute. You will be welcomed. Thank y'all. And Nash, we'll leave on that. Peace out, y'all. All right.